Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. Picking the right college or school for further education if you're LGBTQIA. And how has COVID-19 affected communities globally? We talk to Connecticut College about their global COVID project. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Moving schools or going on to higher education is always challenging, but what if you identify as LGBTQIA? Will the school you go to have all the services you need, even welcome you, or have other students like you? That's where the services of a college consultant and life skills coach can be invaluable, as they research the best education facilities to match your specific requirements. Scott Garbini is one of those professionals and based in southeastern Connecticut, and he explained more about what it is he does. Scott, thanks for joining us on Connecticut East this week. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So explain to us, what is a college consultant and life skills coach? So a college consultant is somebody who works with families, students, that is looking to go on to higher education, and we work together to plan all of the different aspects of what goes into finding a college that's a good fit for you and your family. So we look at different colleges, we research schools, we make college lists, we look at assessments. What are students interested in? Where do they see themselves in the future? How to really navigate the college application process. And the life skills coach is an aspect of my business where I work with students or young adults on setting some realistic life goals and putting steps into place on how to achieve those goals. So it could be getting that first job after college. It could be the transition from high school to college and how do I successfully navigate that? So we we set up a plan, we go through and we make sure that there are attainable goals that the student can work towards and really make sure that that transition from high school to college is working well or from college into life. Always we want to make sure that we're speaking to the best people. And uh, I just want to obviously make it very clear to people that are listening. You are, of course, qualified and you belong to various organizations as well, don't you? And, And I'm guessing that's an important thing for people to be looking for if they do want to get you know, the assistance of somebody like yourself. Absolutely. So I'm not sure if you've recently heard about the Varsity Blues scenario that went on where there was nefarious things going on within admissions and people being guaranteed spots and making payments to coaches and other people to get their spots secured into college. We do not work like that. We do not guarantee admissions to any institution. We do not give you any insider. We don't work for any institutions. We are merely here as consultants to help guide you through the process. And that was a very good question, Brian, as far as making sure that if you do want to work with an independent consultant, that you're looking for somebody who belongs to an organization like the Higher Education Consultants Association or NACHAC or any of the these governing bodies that have an ethics 
standard that we we practice by. So in my office, you'll see that I'm a member of NACAC, the National Association for College Admissions Counseling, and HECA. Um, I have my ethics certifications that I keep in my office so that families know you're working with a reputable person who isn't going to lead you down the wrong path. Now, in particular, you deal with LGBTQIA students and their families. Talk to us a little bit about that. Why this group of people and students in particular? So I myself uh, identify as a gay male. When I was in college, looking back on my experience, there weren't a lot of examples. There wasn't a lot of assistance for students who identified as LGBTQIA+. So as I worked through industry through the years, this was really an area that stuck out to me as far as working with young adults looking to go to college, but what are things specific to LGBTQIA students that they need to take into account when they go off to college? What are some of the things that are going to impact their college career? Do they have health services that are going to be able to work to their specific needs at that time? Are their policies inclusive? Do they have gender inclusive housing? What are the things that as a student, aside from the social and the academic life, what are other things that LGBTQIA students need to understand and think about while they're looking at different colleges through this process? So in doing that, what I do when I'm working with my families is we sort of look through everything. We look at, do they offer gender inclusive housing? Is there a health office that's prepared to handle concerns that are specific to the LGBTQI community? When and do you disclose your identity to people? Some colleges ask for it now. They want to know what your identification is on applications. Some don't. We talk about, I, sometimes I'll get students whose parents don't know. Um, so having to balance that fine line working with the student to make sure that I'm helping guide them into an appropriate fit, but also understanding that they are a young adult and they do have privacy and, and I don't want to cross that line and out them to their parents. But I just want to pick up on that, uh, not the, the parent issue, because you've made that very clear, but the other aspect about disclosing. And you said that, you know, some schools actually now ask that is quite interesting to hear because, you know, we hear about laws and statutes and whatever, which of course change depending on which state you're in. And, you know, in the working world, you know, there's certain things which employers aren't allowed to ask. Why has it become a, like a subject for colleges to actually ask? So it's generally, an, it's an optional question that they are answering, but I believe the reason for it is again, it, colleges are trying to make the experience for their students the best that they can be. We are teaching young adults how to grow and learn and live. So they're asking students about how they identify because students need to know that they're going to be accepted and welcomed on that campus. And I think the campuses are also looking, how do we become more inclusive and how do we support these students? So if we know that we've got a population of students who identify as transgender coming onto campus, do we have the supports that we need to support them and as the consultant, I'm working with the student to find out, does that campus you're looking at have the supports that are going to help support you in your transition or as you're moving through whatever that looks like for you? So I think colleges have started implementing it as a way to let students know, like, we're here to support you. We want to know how to support you in the best way possible. And if you're comfortable putting down how you identify, that's another step that we can use to help you. I've never seen it used against a student that I'm aware of. Most of the students that mark it down are doing it because they've lived a life where they've had to correct people on their pronouns or they've had to let people know how they identify. So I think sometimes for students, just being able to know the college is asking me 
that means that they at least have the understanding of what we're going through and they're trying to to do better. And I think with everything going on right now in the, in the world, that is something that I think everybody's trying to do is how do we become more inclusive? How do we support students of underserved populations and really make sure that they're getting the best experience that they can get in higher education and, and when they're moving through? It is a delicate question to ask anybody at any age. How did you go about it? I don't generally ask a student um, because that is a very personal question. For me, when we're working and we're looking at different colleges, um, first off, in my office, it's very obvious that I'm inclusive and that I am a gay male. I have all of my LGBTQIA um, in college counseling books. Like you can just tell when you walk into my office that I am inclusive about that. So it's relationship building. You want the student to trust you, that you're going to help them and guide them in the right direction. Sometimes a student will tell you, sometimes they won't, and you think that they are, but the worst thing you can do is misgender somebody or out somebody. So it usually will just come up in conversation. The student will mention something or ask me, do you have schools that fit this criteria and I can read between the lines and understand what they're trying to say. But generally I will not ask. That is something that is, it's entirely up to the student when they want to disclose that. I never ask in front of their parents in case their parents do not know. I don't want to break that wall that they might have. Cause again, that is not my job. What my job and my focus is, is to really make sure that we're preparing you and we're finding a place that is going to be a good fit for you, both academically and socially is that these are both big parts of the college experience. And also so, I mean, you've mentioned as well about things like gender inclusive housing. I mean, there's a lot there, isn't there? When you start thinking about, I mean, uh, you know, whether you're LGBTQIA or you identify as, as, as straight. I mean, there's a lot to college anyway, isn't there? There is. And it's for these students that identify as LGBTQIA, a lot of times we're dealing not only with a young adult who is growing and maturing, but we're also sometimes dealing with somebody who could potentially be broken or fragile in the way that they're, they have been raised or in life circumstances. So mental health is a big thing as well when we're talking about LGBTQIA students and services that they need. So, you know, when you're thinking of what supports will my student or if you're a parent, will my child really need? Those are the things that you have to sit down and really start to, to drill down on. One example that we that I recently just had to walk a family through was the child is going through a transition process and getting ready to go off to college, move away from home. They still need mental health therapists. They need their actual medical doctors. They need their surgeons. They need their, their basically their entire medical staff. And do they find a new staff where they're going to school? Do they utilize the doctors that they have back home and then have to worry about getting back and forth as needed? Does the college have a health department that would have services that they could benefit from to use? For example, will the health office at your college be able to get you hormone medication that you might need, or are you gonna to have to get that off campus? This younger group of students I'm working with right now, they're coming through the process. They're looking at a lot of different things that I would have never thought students would look at, like the policies of the college. They're, they're going in and actually researching and seeing how inclusive are the policies that they've written, that they realize that the marketing aspect, you can say you're inclusive all you want, and all, all of these types of things, but how are you actually doing it? Were the campuses written in a gender inclusive way? Did they 
en encompass all of the things that LGBTQIA students would need. Um, it's a talking point right now as far as civil rights going and, and what types of rights should members of the LGBTQIA community have. So there's a lot going on with it. Scott, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and thank you for talking us through just a little bit about the work, the very important work that people like yourself do for, as I say, the young LGBTQIA plus students out there for their higher education. Thanks for joining us on Connecticut East this week. Brian, thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure to be on the show. Thank you so much. And if you want to contact Scott and take advantage of his services, you can find him and his contact details at his website, GarbiniEd, G-A-R-B-I-N-I-E-D.com. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, brought to you by UConn Health. Here for you then, here for you now. Hello, I'm Dr. Golda Ginsberg, and today I'm talking about the mental health issue of anxiety disorders in children and adolescents. Anxiety disorders are the most common conditions among youth, present in about 10%, which means in a classroom of 20 students, at least two will meet criteria for an anxiety disorder. And about two more students will have elevated symptoms of anxiety that impair their functioning in some way. Anxiety disorders are associated with real impairment, such as school absenteeism, academic underachievement, family and social difficulties, and physical complaints that can lead to frequent doctor visits. Anxiety disorders in youth also increase the risk for mental health problems in adulthood. Despite how common these disorders are and how much they affect children and their families, these illnesses often go unidentified and untreated. Knowing the signs is key to getting treatment. These three signs include one, unexplained physical complaints. For instance, does your child complain about headaches, stomach aches, or having trouble sleeping? Two, anxious thoughts. Is your child always thinking about what might go wrong or be harmful and dangerous? And three, avoidance. Does your child stop doing things or going places due to anxiety? When these signs are present and impair functioning, it's time to consider getting help. If you or someone you know is suffering from the signs or symptoms of a mental illness, then contact your doctor and speak to them about professional treatment options and how they can help you. COVID-19 is still very much with us and it seems almost incomprehensible that the world has been living with it now for over a year. So when the world closed down in 2020, teachers and students from Connecticut College in New London decided to start a project to see what the real effects were on not just them, but communities around the world. They created the Global COVID Project, and I caught up with Professors Andrea Lanou and Amy Dooling, the project creators, and Emily Hackett, one of many students who also assisted in the project. Thank you all for joining me. Andrea, I want to turn to you first. We're talking today about the Global COVID Project, which Connecticut College, together with its partners from around the world, have compiled. Explain to the listeners, what was the purpose and why did you want to do this? Sure. Um, a year ago, when the pandemic hit, I was teaching the Gateway course to our International Study Center, for which I am the director. And I, you probably remember, students were all sent home across the nation, across the world, uh, to finish their educations from home. And of course, the, the pandemic was at the forefront of everyone's minds. And the 35 students in my class, we were wondering together, how can we 
better understand what is happening on a global scale. We are the International Study Center after all. And we continue to talk over the summer after the class ended about how to understand the effects of the pandemic on communities throughout the world, across the globe. And we came up with the Global COVID Project, a group of us, a little think tank over the summer, six undergraduates and I, and my colleague, uh, Andrew Lopez at Connecticut College, who is a research librarian, we continued into the fall. I actually taught a, a, a freshman seminar called Global COVID in which we created the current website that you have seen. Um, and then the third iteration is the one that we're talking about today when we, taught, when we took the entire project to a global scale and included partners on four different continents at five different institutions. What was the purpose of actually bringing in the partners from across the world? Well, one, you know, they're located in five different countries to better understand what's happening from there. Uh, of course, there are local effects of COVID um, throughout the globe. Local communities are, are, are global, in fact. And it was a way to get students to be working with peers to better understand how they themselves, their communities are being impacted by COVID while at the same time advancing their research skills. So it really was a way for them to advance um, their intercultural skills with one another of the students have different native languages. And it was just a way also to create connection across our institutions. These are schools we have been partnering with for a number of years now. And it ended up being kind of a, a, a perfect response to uh, uh, an otherwise pretty dire situation with the pandemic. Amy, I want to turn to you. How has like not only this project, but also obviously the pandemic overall interrupted, obviously, the way that students have studied? That's a great question, right? Because it has been a tremendous disruption to international education, which has historically, you know, really centered on study abroad, right? Mobility programs where we're sending students into the world um, to live and learn in other cultures. At Connecticut College, study abroad is a, a very important part of the student experience. About 50% of our students study abroad. And international internships um, is a, the kind of emergent form in which students are you know, pursuing international education experiences. And that has all been disrupted, as, as and Andrea has you know, uh, already said. Since last March, all of these programs have been suspended. Um, and so this year, the challenge has been, how can we create meaningful spaces for our students to continue having international educational experiences and work on expanding capacities for global engagement, even during this period of immobility and lockdown? So, you know, we had to get very creative. And so, you know, the year has been ex been exploring how can we use virtual spaces to provide opportunities for our students to connect with others in meaningful ways. So, I mean, if there's a silver lining, I mean, it's been a, a, obviously a terrible year on so many fronts, on so many different levels. But one silver lining is that it has forced us to really think outside of the box in terms of how we deliver really high quality international education to students. And we have discovered, you know, that virtual exchange, global, you know, international virtual exchange has enormous potential for expanding how we have done international education. So, I mean, I'll say one final thing, which is that, you know, this generation, Gen Z, already lives online in very significant ways. And so it makes a lot of sense um, to be thinking about how can we harness these new ways that they are communicating and interacting with each other already 
in uh, for the purposes of international and global education. So I think that even post-pandemic, we are going to be continuing to explore and pilot and expand these kinds of virtual programs. Emily, I want to turn to you. You're a student at Connecticut College. You were also part of the Global COVID project. Why did you get involved and what did you get out of it? When I heard about the Global, global COVID project um, in, in this year when it has been so difficult to really meet new people and to, to travel and experience experience new cultures, I, I immediately was interested to sort of connect in, in this, both the scholarly, but also social way with with students from our partner institutions. Um, it it just seemed like uh, as, as a sophomore in college, I haven't done much research myself. I don't have that much research experience. So on the one hand, it seemed like a way to gain new perspective of, on how to approach research because I would be collaborating with students from different um, educational systems, different countries with, you know, different life experiences, but also a way to get to know, you know, make a new friend um, personally. Um, and and that that did end up happening. We, we um, not only were researching the effects of COVID-19 on education in our respective countries, but we also did cultural conversations which were provided um, to us by the Walter Commons and got to know each other on a more personal level and understand how, you know, how our life experiences in our respective countries may have shaped what we wanted to focus on in our research. In, in my um, group, I had a um, student from uh, Zimbabwe, a student from uh, St. Petersburg, Russia, um, a student um, in France. If it hadn't been for the pandemic, she would have been. Um, she studies in Hong Kong, and finally, an intern and a student from Connecticut College, um, an international student from Vietnam. And it was a wonderful experience to get all of those different perspectives. Andrew, I want to come back to you. The project focused on five prominent areas, education, environment, activism, policy, and inequality. What stood out in maybe a couple of those things which were either surprising to you? Well, the, the first thing, obviously, is that all of these different areas are interrelated. So activism, you know, on the one hand, everyone is locked down. No one is supposed to be going out into the streets. And yet we've seen more activism. There's a kind of paradox to much of it, right, that it's the act of being told to, to stay home that is actually forcing people to see some of the injustices in the world and, um, and to protest against them. Inequality is one of those areas in which people have seen um, the, the the pandemic itself has made pre-existing social inequalities visible to many people that have sparked global activism. The environment, as much as people have been staying home and not driving, we've heard, oh, what wonderful air quality we have now because people are not driving their cars. And yet look at all the plastic, look at all of the single-use masks, look at so much trash that we are that we are producing. And of course, education, you know, the big kind of meta outcome of this is that 
higher education, education itself, public and private education is all being transformed by the pandemic, including this project itself. I have been working with colleagues in Russia, with one of our partners actually in St. Petersburg since 2008, quite actively. And yet I don't think we would have been working together in this way if it weren't for COVID-19. Uh, finally, policy responses are what unify all of it, right? Um, the the goal of activism is, is often a permanent way to how we change things. So students were, it's really my students who came up with these five areas. How do you focus a lens on what is happening in reality um, in response to the pandemic? I think that these five areas are ones that they felt very passionate about. And we kept seeing the, the interconnection and interrelation between all five areas. Well, it is an absolutely amazing project. And uh, obviously, to everybody at Connecticut College, the students, uh, the professors, and also, of course, your partners. And uh, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us, Brian. Thank you for having us. And you can see the results of the project at the website globalcovid19.digital.concol.edu. It's mulch season, so come and visit Green Valley Tree LLC. We have a variety of colors for all your landscaping needs. Buy as much or as little as you want, pick it up, or we can deliver to your door. Call Green Valley Tree LLC for all your mulch, plant health care, and tree service needs at 860-234-4041. Or find us at 577 Boston Post Road, North Windham, Connecticut. We are family-owned and fully licensed. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently, sponsored by... The Connecticut Council on Problem Gambling is a nonprofit organization which, through advocacy, prevention, and education, is here to support individuals and families who are impacted by problem gambling. Our helpline, 1-888-789-7777, is available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. We also have live chat and tech support through our website, www.ccpg.org. Access Health CT, the state's insurance marketplace, has started a special enrollment period from May 1st until August 15th to allow new and existing customers to benefit from new federal healthcare subsidies. James Michelle is the CEO of Access Health CT and says initially people must contact them to get the subsidies, but that will change later this year. Starting on on July 1st, we would have updated our system and any customer who qualifies, we will automatically update their records so that the additional benefit will accrue automatically for them. Residents could save thousands of dollars in healthcare premiums thanks to the introduction of the recent American Rescue Plan Act. The healthcare savings are initially for a two-year period but could be extended and Access Health CT is encouraging those without health insurance in particular to contact them. Details can be found at accesshealthct.com. The City of New London is launching an innovative new project to assist those in the community with mental health issues who frequently come into contact with law enforcement. Michael Passero, the Mayor of New London, says a study they carried out unearthed startling figures about what many police calls in the city end up being about. We have no problem with diversity in this city and we brag about our diversity. It's the equity and the inclusion that we have to work on. And this program is going to be key because we identified 40% of our police responses are directly related to mental health issues. And that's what this program is going to address. 
The new programme will allow law enforcement to refer individuals to specially trained navigators who will be out in the city who can refer people for treatment and other essential services. The City of New London is initially funding the groundbreaking programme with $200,000 included in the city budget. In the Connecticut Examiner this week, all signs point to what should be a summer of reuniting with loved ones, re-entering society and to some degree returning to normalcy for Connecticut residents. But in a series of interviews, therapists told the Connecticut Examiner that many of their clients with clinical anxiety may not be ready to go back out into the world just yet. According to a survey from the American Psychological Association, almost half of Americans report feeling comfortable returning to pre-pandemic life, and vaccinated Americans are just as likely to say this compared to those who have not received the vaccine. In the day this week, in a display of southern New England's newfound political clout, two U.S. cabinet secretaries joined a U.S. senator, two U.S. representatives and Governor Lamont in vouching for the kind of apprenticeship programs that are helping electric boat in Groton ramp up its submarine building workforce. In the Norwich Bulletin this week, many people from eastern Connecticut gathered on the grounds of the Bosra Farmers Market recently to remember a man important to all of them, former Norwich Community Development Corporation President Jason Vincent. Vincent was reported missing on December 30, 2020, after his vehicle was found abandoned on the New River Gorge Bridge in West Virginia. His body was later recovered from Hawksnest River Dam. And in next week's Connecticut East this week... We catch up with Michael Spellman, the chief of the City of Groton Police, who retires after more than a three-decade career in law enforcement. Spellman talks about his career, how policing has changed, and what meant the most to him during his police career. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week, where you can also listen to the show again on demand. And please like, follow and share on your social media platforms too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening.